Uh, I've been fielding questions all week. Uh, how do we handle this? And even last night, someone called, and it was just, um, everyone has different kinds of emotions, and, and something like this has the potential to do that, right? We can all admit that. And asking this question, who wins, who's winning, who's going to win, however, in the everyday rhythms of life, outside of what we're thinking about in politics, asking this question within the everyday rhythms of life also has the potential to be deeply impactful and can be a, really, it can bring a tremendous amount of clarity regarding what it means to live wisely or to live a life worth living. And let's just be honest with ourselves. <laughs> the greatest impact you and I have in the everyday choices of our lives, uh, in our relationship, in our time, in our resources, uh, really, uh, the, the greatest impact we have is in these three areas, in our time, in our relationships, and our resources. And while what is happening around the world around us has the potential to move us in, in many different ways, uh, I want to just acknowledge that. The truth is that the most important question is, isn't who will win as a result of our votes. The most important question isn't who will win as a result of our votes. I, I know, I've heard some of you even last week here at our gathering, like, oh, Phil, I, it, it is important. And, I, and I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just saying it isn't the most important. Because the most important thing isn't who will win as a result of our votes. The most important question is, who wins as a result of the decisions of our everyday rhythms? Now, I know that might not make sense. Let me just slow that down and repeat it. And as we go over this this week, uh, this today, I, I think it'll make more sense. But the most important question is this. Who will win as a result of our everyday rhythms? You see, my hope for those who follow Jesus is that we do not get sucked into the current wave of socio-political, therapeutic moralism that wants you to believe that those who proclaim things like Jesus is still on the throne or all we need to do is love are cop-outs to greater problems that exist in our world. I want you to know that. Even best-selling author, clinical psychologist, and university professor observed that even though Christianity had its problems in the scope of history, he said this, it is, a, it is more appropriate to note that they, the, the Christian problems, the problems that Christians uh, uh, are, are, are dealing with now, whatever, whatever you think those might be, it is more important to note that they were the sort of problems that emerge only after an entirely different set of more serious problems has been solved. Now listen to this. The society pr produced by Christianity was far less barbaric than the pagan, even the Roman ones it replaced. Christian society at the least recognized that feeding slaves to ravenous lions for the entertainment of the populace was wrong, even if many barbaric practices still existed. It objected infanticide to prostitution and to the principle that might mean, uh, and to the principle that might means right. It insisted that women were as valuable as men, even though we are 
still working out how to manifest that insistence politically. It demanded that even a society's enemies be regarded as human. Listen to that. That a society's enemies be regarded as human. Finally, it separated church from state so that all two human emperors could no longer claim the veneration due to gods. All of this was asking the impossible, but it happened. As the Christian revolution progressed, however, the impossible problems that it had solved disappeared from view. That's what happens to problems that are solved. After the solution was implemented, even the facts that such problems had ever existed disappeared from view. Then and only then could the problems that remained less amenable to quick solution by Christian doctrine come to occupy a central place in the consciousness of the West. The fact that automobiles pollute only becomes a problem of sufficient magnitude to attract public attention when the far worse problems that the internal combustion engine solves vanished from view. People stricken with poverty don't care about carbon dioxide. It's not precisely that CO2 levels are irrelevant. It's that they're irrelevant when you're working to death, starving scraping a bare living from the stony, unyielding, thorn and thistle-infested ground. It's that they're irrelevant until after the tractor is invented and hundreds of millions stop starving. So over the next few weeks, I want to pose questions we can all ask that allows us who follow Jesus to filter the everyday choices and realities of our lives through the lens of faith. This week, I want us to ask a question. Who wins when Jesus defines our love? This is the question I want us to ask. Who wins when Jesus defines our love this week? If it seems uh, superfluous or excessive, maybe, to place the way we live our lives in terms of winning or losing, I know some, of, some people don't like that, just remember what the Scripture tells us. In Ephesians 6.12, it says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. This is an imagery of winning and losing here. But against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly realms. I, listen, believer, I don't know if you understand this, because I think we're looking at the world around us, and we think in terms of winning and losing in the the, the tangible and political, but we failed, I think, sometimes to remember that there is a battle going on for the hearts and souls of people, that there is a real enemy, but there's also a real victor who has already won the war. His name is Jesus Christ, but the war still rages, and I think we need to remember that, and so it's important to ask, who wins when Jesus defines our love? Because these questions are pertinent to the realities of the unforeseen world. And maybe even the more important question is not who wins when Jesus defines our love, but maybe the question is this, who wins when anything other than Jesus defines our love? Like, who wins when anything else except who Jesus is, his teaching, his example, and his life, who wins when any other example except for that becomes 
our example for love. Who wins? In light of the fact that we are fighting a war, not against flesh and blood, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against the evil spirits in the heavenly places. Who wins when our life is based less off of Jesus and more on other things? Who wins when the way we treat those around us is not influenced by the totality of the life of Jesus, but is determined, listen, who wins when our love is determined by the moralistic ideals of the populace, or at best, therapeutic moralism attributed to a cherry-picked set of teachings from Jesus pulled out of context and out of its original intent. Who wins when we live life that way? That's what I want to explore today. (laughs) And so before we jump into Galatians chapter 5, here's a little background. Throughout his life, Paul started churches. Some of you know this. Paul started churches everywhere. He got them up and running, and he turned them over to local leaders to continue the way of Jesus. He would often communicate with those churches to give them continued guidance and instruction. And, and the way he would do that would be through letters, right? And so those letters are what we have today and would make up much of what we call the New Testament. And usually, when Paul wrote a letter to a church or a group of churches, it was to instruct them about about specific questions or oftentimes to correct them regarding something that was happening in their midst. And in this case, Paul was writing to the Galatians to correct them regarding some of the behavior, the ways of thinking that was going on in and around the area of Galatia. Now, there were two extreme camps that were setting themselves up against each other in this story, okay? Two extreme camps. In one camp, you had people who believed that freedom from sin, uh, from the sin they experienced in, in following Jesus, required a, what we would call a legalistic approach. Like, I've been free in Jesus, so therefore, I need to follow all the rules because after all he's done, and I need to not only follow them, but I need to create separate rules that make sure I don't even come close to following these rules. And by the way, since they're good for me, they're good for you too. And by the way, let's just go ahead and tell everybody that if you break the rules that are good for me to keep me from breaking the actual rules, you technically broke the rules too. And so this is kind of this weird thinking that was going on, this over here on this, this, this side over here. And then on, over here on this side, there was another camp that believed that the freedom they had in Christ was the permission to live their life however they wanted so that felt most authentic, right? Jesus saved me from my sin, so now I no longer need to worry about every single thing I do and live in the guilt that I always, you know, because I, I grew up with a parent who made me feel guilty and this freedom in Christ all of a sudden made me feel like my worth is not based on what I do, but it's one on my relationship with Jesus, so, you know, I'm just going to live life authentically. <laughs> yeah, I know what I'm doing over there doesn't quite fit in line with everything that it says in the Bible, but you know what? God loves me, and, I, and his, his love covers all, right? Because grace covers a multitude of sins. And so you had these two camps, one over here who believed their freedom in Christ now propelled them into a legalistic style of living, and then you have over here people who their freedom in Christ was now propelling them to a life in the name of authenticity was actually sinful living. They weren't actually following Jesus, and neither were they. So 
is the solution to these problems that were causing divisions and unhealthy relationships. Uh, so so what, what was this solution? What was it? Here's what Paul says. Galatians chapter 5, start at verse 13. It says this, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve. So he's <laughs> for the flesh. Boom! <laughs> and then he goes, he doesn't forget about this side, but serve one another through love. Oh. <laughs> I could see them reading this letter in the middle of the church and split on one side with the two camps. And whoever was in charge of reading this letter says, hey guys, I have something that Paul needs to say. Yeah, okay, he's going to agree with me. No, he's going to agree with me. Well, I, usually when he was over at my house, this is what he said. Well, when he was over at my house, this is what he said. And he goes, you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Oh. <laughs> See? <laughs> but serve one another in love. Oh. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. If you bite and devour one another, you will be consumed by one another. This emphasis on loving others as a shape that our spirituality should take, quite frankly, is absolutely captivating. Why does the entire first century church begin to teach about loving each other as the primary emphasis of a growing spirituality? Because our faith is relationship. Our spirituality is worked out not only between us and God, but God calls us into community with others. The entire emphasis of the first century church is love others, and that's how you demonstrate your love for God. Love others as Christ loved you, and that's how you demonstrate your love for God. Loving others is how you demonstrate your love for God. That's that point there. We know that the idea of loving God, though, right, not necessarily the result of being a lover of God, can lead to things like the Spanish Inquisition. We know that the idea of loving God, not really the result of being a lover of God, can lead to things like the Crusades. It could lead to things like the witch hunts and the witch burnings. It can lead to things like beheadings. It could lead to things like terrorism and acts of violence. Listen, it could even lead to cancel culture. It could lead to public shaming and divisiveness among the very people who have engaged in a life of faith in Jesus. Why? Because I love God. And if you love God like me, then you wouldn't think like that. So the question is, forgive me if I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm this has been pent up, so. <laughs> who wins when we live like this? Who wins when the world watches Christians shame and cancel each other in the name of following Jesus, in the name of the gospel? Who wins when the world watches us do that? When asked by those who did not believe in him 
What are the most important commandments? Jesus taught what? Love God and love people as the right approach to life. This is what he told those who didn't believe him, who weren't following him, who said, what is the way to heaven? But listen, I don't know if you've noticed this. Do you know what Jesus said to his own disciples when, when pressed with the same question? He taught them that the way they would love God would be defined by how they love people around them too. But he said it in this way. In John 13, 34 to 35, it says this. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Yes, Jesus, we already heard you tell this to the people out in the street. No, listen to me, Peter. Because <laughs> probably Peter. <laughs> Peter. Peter, Peter. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another, this love that looks like me, will prove to the world that you are my disciples. The greatest love is when you are committed to ascribing value to those whom God loves. But the primary way by which we do that must be modeled after the life of Jesus. The primary way we work out our faith, by the way, is by loving those whom Jesus loves in the way that Jesus loved them. Paul continued his argument by saying something absolutely brilliant. Look at this, verse 16. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. Those are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. Okay, there are a lot of opposing forces that are going on that we must pay attention to. And in this world and in this climate, there's a lot of opposing sides that we want to concentrate on but as followers of Jesus, I think we need to recognize there is an opposing force within all of us. And if we get this wrong, everything is wrong. Because there is a difference between the direction of your life and the intentions of your life. There's a difference between the direction of your life, <laughs> what you're actually doing, and the intentions of your life. Well, I want to... I wanna, I meant to. Well, I, I, my intention was. In other words, in one corner are the decisions you are making with your life, and in the other corner are the good intentions you have of your life. But those are not the same sometimes. Specifically, Paul was speaking to followers of Christ who should all be people who have the good intention of loving others just as Christ loved us, which the Holy Spirit gives, but you don't have to be a follower of Christ to understand that there is an influential, destructive force that often keeps people from living in the right relationship with others and keeping others from living in right relationship with you despite intentions. This is why we say things to the people we love. I'm sorry for that thing I said. I didn't, what, mean to. What does that say about you when you find yourselves 
doing the things you know are wrong. What does that say about you? And who wins when you believe that the measure of your life is completely seen by your intentions? Who wins when you believe that like, as long as your intentions are good, you're living a holy life? Who wins when you believe that way? Jesus taught his disciples that sin and our sinful nature is what separates us from living in right relationship with God, as well as others. And this is how Paul explained in these next few verses, starting in verse 19. Look at this. He says, Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outburst of angers. At that point, most of you are like, yeah, not guilty. Oh, now you're messing with me, Phil. Well, he has more to say. Selfish ambitions. You ever been selfish? Dissensions. Factions. Envy. Drunkenness. Carousing and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before. That those things, that those who practice such things will not, listen, will not, everyone say will not, will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law, the Torah, as he was referring to, is not against such things. Listen, don't miss how absolutely brilliant what Paul is saying here. He's saying, ultimately, the proof of your love is not found in your ability to stand behind rhetoric or ideologies, but whether or not you bear spiritual fruit. The question is not, where are your ideologies or your rhetoric? The question is, where is your spiritual fruit? What does your spiritual fruit look like? Who wins when the outcome of your decisions, your words, and attitudes finds you at the center of outbursts of anger? Who wins? Who wins when the outcome of your life and your decisions and your everyday rhythms finds you in the middle of dissensions? Who wins? Who wins when, you, when, when, when your everyday rhythms and your thinking and your thoughts allow you to live in a kind of way that finds you in the middle of factions? Who wins? Who wins? Who wins when the outcome of your decisions, words, and attitudes, though, find you at the center of peace? Who wins when the rhythms of your life find you expressing patience? Who wins when you choose, despite the nature within you, to not? You display gentleness to those who do not deserve gentleness 
and self-control in the midst of a world that is telling you it's okay just to go ahead and let it fly. Who wins then when the way we live looks more like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness? Who wins when our love is defined by Jesus? And this, this is what, this is a question I want us to ask over the next three weeks. I think it could be a very important and very clarifying question. Because I think even you're smart enough to know the answer to that question. Who wins? Like, who wins when I live this way? Who wins when I think this way? Who wins when the, 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 the attitudes of my life puts me at odds with those who are supposedly my brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, Phil, you don't understand. They're maybe really not brothers and sisters in Christ if they do not get the basic truths and facts of, of the doctrines of Jesus that explain the blah, 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 blah. Okay, okay, okay. So you're going to tell me, we, we just went through the book of Acts, right? You're going to tell me that the disciples who allowed Simon the sorcerer to become a, a, a follower of Jesus. Now you're like Paul. You're saying your theology is as astute and as correct as the disciples who walked with Jesus. And you're going to go ahead and make that call. Oh, I know. You follow that one pastor online who says those things and so you repost it and now you're like using it as your only... Listen. You can repost that stuff, but if you don't have the theology and you haven't studied the Word and you don't own it, if you're just using it as a way to bolster your own opinion, let me ask you this. Who wins when you live that way? When you live in the type of way that cancels your brothers and sisters of Christ? This, to me, is the greatest danger that I think is coming towards the church in the coming years. Because if we could not be divided, then we cannot be overcome. But if we are divided, then all hope is lost. We've got to figure out. We've got to figure out what does it mean to live gospel-centered, even in the midst of everything we're going through. Because if we don't figure this out, then it doesn't matter how well we feed the poor. It doesn't matter how much racial inequality is abolished. It does not matter how much all these issues that we're looking for. Because, Je listen, this is not in my notes. I'm just preaching now. Jesus didn't die on the cross. This is going to ruffle some feathers. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that women could get equal pay. Should they? Absolutely. Jesus did not die on the cross so that Christians would stop being thrown into the gladiators arena. But is it important that that happened? Absolutely. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because the ultimate problem is that we are people of sin who need a Savior. We are people who need to understand our need for God and repent and submit our lives to Him and we are a people that need to be restored to relationship with God. And that's the only thing. When you forget the ultimate reason why Jesus and why the gospel exists, all the subheadings, the things that we have really honestly benefited as a result of the work of the gospel in our world, 
then you forget it all. Who wins when we think on the secondary things that the gospel gives us as the most important? Who wins when we forget that the most important thing for the Christian's life is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love others, especially. I don't know how you can read your Bible and not know that the Bible doesn't say over and over and over again, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ, even the ones I don't agree with politically, even the ones you don't agree with politically. But that's hard. How are you help me to figure it out? I don't know. But that's the work. That's the work. We've got to figure that out. Now, three things to remember about spiritual fruit, and then I'll be done. One, you've heard me say this before. Your root determines your what? Fruit, right? Your root determines your fruit. We are growing Jesus' fruit, followers of Jesus. An apple tree grows apples, and the reason it grows apples is because that it's connected to what? An apple tree. And as we stay connected to Jesus, we will grow Jesus' fruit. In the midst of all the messages that are out there, let me tell you this. Stay connected to Jesus. That is your only hope. Second thing is this. Fruit grows over time. Fruit grows over time. Most of the time, the fruit of the character of Jesus will grow slowly. <laughs> the way you identify it is usually only in retrospect. It's like watching a kid grow, right? When I'm with my kids every day, I don't notice how much they are growing, but when I look at a picture of them from even two or three months ago, I'm blown away by how much they've grown. I, I, I just looked at a picture from Brennan just a year ago, and he was like right here. And now he's, well, according to him, he's taller than me, but not quite yet. Only his hair is taller. Growing in love and in the way of Jesus is often the same thing, right? You suddenly notice at some point in your life, whoa! Had that happened last year, I would have lost my cool or reacted differently, but now I'm reacting in a way that is more in line with Jesus' character and love. Jesus' fruit grows slowly over time. You do not pray a prayer and all of a sudden become Jesus Jr., okay? That's not how it happens. The third thing is this. A fruit grows because of its connection not because of effort, okay? Connection, not effort. A branch by itself never wills fruit into being. I've never seen a dead limb on the tree go, I will live, I will live, I will live, despite being disconnected from the tree. I've never seen it live. And a fruit-bearing branch simply stays connected to the tree and the fruit because they stay connected, is what naturally is produced. Jesus said this, I am the true grapevine and my Father is the gardener. John 15, he cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. 
And he prunes the branches that do not bear fruit so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me and I will remain in you for a branch cannot produce fruit. If it is severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. So stay close to Jesus. In the middle of all of this, stay close to Jesus. Well, how do you do that, Phil? What does that look like? Well, here's what Jesus said. John 15, verse 9, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. And here's how you do it. Remain in my love. And when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in His love. What does love look like? Obey Jesus. Everything he said. In other words, when you hear the message of Jesus and his instructions, just don't let it become an academic exercise. As you learn, do what you learn. Learn as you go, and then do as you know. And as you apply lesson by lesson, truth by truth, verse by verse, just ask yourself this question. What is my next step in following Jesus right now? Not just learning about Jesus, but arranging your life around walking with Him. And as you do that, listen, your fruit or Jesus-like love will continue to grow. That's why Jesus said this in verse 11 of John 15. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Who thinks we could all use some joy right now? I tell you these things so you'll be filled with my joy. I read that this week and I just, I wept because I'm like, God, I want your joy. I need your joy. And this is not about political, by the way, this is not a political statement. This is about seeing the actual reality of the division and the animosity that is seen between people. That's where my heart is sorrowful. And we need some joy in the middle of this. Jesus said, yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love one another in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. Jesus would say it another way, as quoted by Matthew and by Mark. He would say things like this. This is what my love looks like. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, that despitefully use you and pers- That's so weird. I don't understand it. Well, you've you've got time to understand. But now is the time to obey. And I hope that we as a church would understand that staying connected to Jesus empowers our ability to love because if we don't get this, we will actually not know how to even answer the question, who wins when anything but the love of Jesus defines our love? I fear that one day, by the way, the correct answer is the evil one. The evil one is the one who wins when the way we love each other looks anything but how Jesus loved. And I fear the day when we, when we find ourselves reasoning and qualifying our actions because we, won't, we don't want to deal with the fact that the way we're living 
at its core is essentially against God's standards. And if we can't figure this out, well, the history of the church and the work of the gospel and God's promise to build this church has told me that it's hopeful. There is good news. God will build his church. And the question for you and me is this. Will you join the move of God or will you watch it in passing as you wrestle in your own ways of how to deal with dying to the flesh and dying to your own desires? That's the question. Because God will build his church. The gospel will continue to change lives. And will you live according to God, or will you continue to not ask the question, who wins when anything but the love of Jesus defines my love?